0: Scripture reading comes from the book of Mark, chapter 11, verses 27 through 33. They arrived again in Jerusalem, and while Jesus was walking in the temple courts, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked, and who gave you the authority to do this? Jesus replied, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. John's baptism, was it from heaven or of human origin? Tell me. They discussed it amongst themselves and said, If we say from heaven, he will ask, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, they feared the people, for everyone held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We don't know. Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Andrew.
1: We're working our way through the Gospel of Mark, one of the four Gospels that begins the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And really, we're coming to the culmination of Mark. Uh, Jesus is in Jerusalem confronting the authorities, If you read the Bible, it's divided into two parts. The first part, the Old Testament, gives you the history of God's relationship with Israel, the Jewish people, the chosen people, how that relationship began with Abraham and what happened through the history of Israel becoming a people, becoming a nation, um, receiving God's teaching and law, being settled in the Promised Land, having the temple at the center of their communal life. And then Jesus shows up, and that's the New Testament. And Jesus comes, not just in opposition, but as a replacement for the temple, for the center of Jewish life. And we begin to see that here as Jesus, after beginning his ministry in Galilee and gathering his disciples, has moved to Jerusalem and is now at the very center of things. So let's have a look at what's happening. They arrived again in Jerusalem, and while Jesus was walking in the temple courts, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders came to him. They arrived again in Jerusalem. This is Jesus' third visit to Jerusalem. We've seen him march from Galilee directly down to Jerusalem, and the first time he enters is what we celebrate on Palm Sunday, Jesus' riding on a donkey, being acclaimed by Jerusalem as the returning king, as the Messiah. And Jesus enters Jerusalem, and then he leaves. And the second time we looked at, this is where Jesus enters the temple, drives out the money changers. Um, The temple courts around the temple had been turned into a marketplace where people could change money from wherever they came around the Roman Empire, Returning pilgrims, where they could buy animals to sacrifice, where they could trade. And Jesus gets upset that the temple has been turned into a marketplace and drives them out. This is the third time. And this is what Jesus does in Jerusalem it is no longer the place where God and man meet, it is no longer his father's house. And so Jesus doesn't stay in Jerusalem at night, he always leaves and then returns. The priests, the teachers, and the elders came to him. This is basically a coalition of all the most influential people of Jerusalem and Israel. These are the leaders. These are the elite. Jesus has finally come to them and confronted them and has become undeniable and unignorable. They have to deal with him. And so this is the first serious encounter in Jerusalem. And Jesus um, presents two major challenges to the leaders. They've seen him arrive at the head of a column of people, the people who were following him, a a large mass, a large crowd, and being acclaimed by Jerusalem as the returning king and Messiah. The leaders saw that, and they heard it. They've seen him enter Jerusalem and the temple, And with authority, drive out all those who had turned it into a marketplace. These leaders watched that. So there are two possibilities. Jesus, this man who's shown up on their doorstep, either has genuine authority as the Messiah, or he's some kind of usurper, some kind of who knows what, somebody who is challenging the authority of the leaders. He's one of the two, and they have to figure out which one. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked, and who gave you authority to do this? By what authority? What gave you the authority to show up, be acclaimed as king and messiah? What gave you the authority to to enter the temple and drive out all those who had turned it into a marketplace? Authority and legitimacy, the leaders believe, is theirs. Who is this stranger coming from outside the city, apparently with his own authority? Who gave you authority? Israel, and if you read the Old Testament, you will see this, Israel does not have a constitution. It's not based on some kind of lineage of leaders or kings. There are no secular institutions as the source of legitimacy or power. Israel is premised on their relationship with God, and the whole Old Testament is about that. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush and gave his name Yahweh, the God who rescued Israel from slavery, took them to Mount Sinai, turned them from slaves into a free people with their own laws, when Moses gave them the Ten Commandments and the law of God, the God who led them through the desert, fed them by day with manna, illuminated them at night, the God who brought them into the Promised Land, the God who constituted them as Israel, and at the very center, the temple, with the Ark of the Covenant, and the whole sacrificial system. Everything in Israel, everything in Jerusalem, is premised on God's presence, God's authority, and God's activity. So when they say, who gave you authority, that's what they're asking. Is it something we don't understand, or is it God, the one that we claim to be the representatives of? And by the way, if you read the Old Testament... It is a record of God being active. Oftentimes the leaders go astray. And time and time again, in fact, virtually the whole Old Testament is the record of God sending prophets, sending leaders to challenge the existing leadership to replace it and to lead Israel afresh back on to the right course. That's what they're afraid of. Did God send this man, as he sent prophets in the past, to replace us, to challenge us? Jesus replied, I will ask you one question. Answer me and I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. John's baptism, was it from heaven or of human origin? Tell me. When Jesus begins his ministry, he goes out into the desert, and then he meets John the Baptist. John the Baptist was a wild, uncivilized man. He had a camel hair shirt, robe. He lived on honey and locusts. He was in the desert. He was outside Jerusalem. He was outside of Israelite society. He had no credentials from that society. He was outside the civic centers, outside of Jerusalem and the centers of influence and power. He was outside of the temple and the whole system of sacrifice and worship. And there he was outside, alone in the desert on the banks of the Jordan. And Israelites were leaving Jerusalem to go and be baptized by him. He had created a sort of counter-temple. For an Israelite, the way that you made yourself right with God was to go to the temple, pay a temple tax, sacrifice an animal, and then the blood of that sacrifice washed you clean and you are right with God. The whole temple was premised on that transaction. But it cost you money. You had to pay a temple tax, you had to sacrifice an animal, you had to go in pilgrimage to Jerusalem. John the Baptist offered it all for free, out in the desert, on the banks of the Jordan. His was a baptism of repentance. Instead of blood, he washed people with water and made them right with God. And when he saw Jesus, and when he baptized Jesus, he said, This is the Son of God. This is the Lamb that is sacrificed. He'd established a new way outside of Jerusalem, outside of the temple, to make yourself right with God. And he acknowledged Jesus as the way to do that. John's baptism, was it from heaven or of human origin? Tell me. So he's challenging them, the leaders of the temple. Is what John is doing of God? Do you believe that? And if it is of God, what on earth are you Where is your faith, he's asking them. Is your faith in God or the institutions and practices, the position and power that you have in Jerusalem? And the problem for them is increasingly people were turning to John. People acknowledged John the Baptist as a prophet from God and people in turn increasingly were turning to Jesus. He was acknowledged as King and Messiah when he came to Jerusalem. He's saying, where is your faith? They discussed it among themselves and said, if we say from heaven, he will ask, then why don't you believe him, John the Baptist? But if we say of human origin, they feared the people, for everyone held that John really was a prophet. It's all about God, your relationship with him, their relationship with him, and where their faith was. Their job as leaders of Israel was to point people to God, to lead people to God, to teach people about God, to lead people in prayer and worship of God, to maintain the the temple as the place that people could meet God and sacrifice to God. And they had lost their way. They had forgotten their purpose. And Israel with them. They would become more like politicians without principles or morals whose only concern is popularity and holding on to their position and power. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. Think what they're saying. They're meant to be the leaders who point people to God. They're meant to be people in relationship with God, defined by God. And yet they don't know where authority lies. Jesus said, Neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. So, what does it mean to us, this story? Well, think where we are in the gospel story. Jesus has returned to, uh, to Jerusalem, to the temple. He's, he is returned as the king. That's what Palm Sunday is about. Second visit, he has returned with authority and cleansed the temple. This time, the third time, he is confronting the leadership of Israel and Jerusalem. And the leadership have lost their way. They no longer fear God. They no longer put their faith in God. They have learned instead to fear the people rather than lead them. So what's that got to do with us? How can we apply this to our own lives? Well, there's no specifics here, but there's no reason to think that these leaders were anything different from us. No doubt, when they were born and when they were raised, they were raised in good faith. They were taught about God. They were pointed in that direction. What happened to them? It's a reminder that faith is a constant journey. Faith is a decision. We looked at this last week. Faith is a gift from God. It's not something that we have. God gives us faith as he gives us other things joy, peace, goodness, kindness, gentleness, self-control, faith is one gift amongst others. And we, as Christians, all Christians, you and I, have a constant decision to make. Are we going to live day by day, moment by moment, based on faith in God or faith in other things? It is not a once-and-done decision. You don't become a Christian and then it's all done and dusted. It's a journey. The technical word for this is sanctification, the progressive sanctification, the progressive journey to holiness. And it is a journey made step-by-step every day, and faith is never without doubt, without temptation, without other things in the world calling on us, other alternatives to God. The trouble with those leaders is that they had been tempted by other sources of meaning, by other purposes, by other ways of what they thought was living out their life. John the Baptist revealed that they had become bureaucrats, running an institutional temple machine for their own purposes, for their own gain, for their own power. They served for themselves at the temple, rather than for God and for his people. And that is the temptation for all of us. It's the reason, by the way, in the Lord's Prayer, we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Not my kingdom come and be advanced, not my will be done on earth as it is in heaven, but God's will, God's kingdom, God's purposes. And every day, every moment, we have a decision. Are we living based on faith in God and his purposes or faith in our own little kingdoms, our own little projects, our own little dreams? That's the decision that Jesus confronts the leaders with, and it's the decision that every one of us is confronted with. What is the foundation of our life? Faith in God or faith in other things? And as a shorthand, you can uh, identify these different ways of living as fear of man versus fear of God. Fear of man or human beings is essentially idolatry. Making things other than God, people or institutions, the center of your life rather than God. Letting the world, letting other people, letting politics, money, celebrity, material things, define who you are and what you do and what you make plans for. You know that you fear man when you are terrified of an abusive boss. You know that you fear man when, if your boss calls up and says, I want you to work the weekend, you don't say, Well, I need to worship God this weekend on Sunday. You put your boss and your job first, and God is second. It means being terrified of being excluded. Getting fired, not being invited to the right parties, or clubs, or associations. Not being part of the right trade groups. Not being part of some human inner circle of influence, power, beauty, celebrity, whatever it is. Technically, idolatry, fear of man, is putting something in the world, something which is inherently, un, uh, inherently limited, and making it and treating it as if it is worthy of worship and awe, giving it power of your life rather than God. The best example, by the way, of this in the Bible is the story of David and Goliath. God's people, led by their first king Saul, are in a battle with the Philistines. And it comes to a stalemate. And so each side chooses a champion, and the Philistines choose Goliath. And if you read the story, the whole story is about how gigantic Goliath is. And it tells you how big his spear was and exactly how much it weighed, and how big his shield was. It tells you how big his sword was and how much it weighed. It describes in detail his armor and everything about him. And if you read the story, God is never mentioned. It's all about Goliath, how awesome how overwhelming, what a superpower he is. And the Israelites are terrified. And then David shows up. David was a shepherd. He spent his time alone. He spent his time with God. He was the one who writes all the Psalms. He knew God. In fact, the Bible says he was a man after God's own heart. And when he shows up at the battle, he's a little shepherd boy. And he sees Goliath. He doesn't see this superpower, the apex of military technology. He sees a human being. And he says, why on earth, he says to Israel, why on earth are you afraid of a human being when God is on your side? And when David shows up in the story, it's the first time that God is mentioned at all. Israel had become in awe of the power of this man, Goliath, and the Philistines. They had forgotten who God was and who God is. They had become fearful of another human being, fear of man. What drives out that fear? Fear of God. Because God is genuinely all-powerful, omnipotent. And when God fills your imagination, there is no room to be afraid of anything else. That is why God comes first. Fear of man is driven out by fear of God. But what is fear of God? I mean, it seems paradoxical, right? God is love, after all. Why Would we want to fear him or should fear him? What place does fear have? Well, fear of man is awe and worship of created, limited things. Fear of God is awe and worship of the creator of all things. Omnipotent, which means all-powerful. Omniscient, which means who knows all things from the beginning to the end. And omnipresent. Every aspect of the created order is present to him, including every one of us and every thought in our head. And when you come face to face with that awesome God, the natural response is fear. If you read the Bible, whenever God or his angels show up, the first thing that is said is fear not, because everybody is terrified. Why would that be? Because God is utterly not like us. He is a power that we cannot control, that we cannot understand, that is overwhelming. And to be confronted by God is to be confronted by an all-powerful person and recognize that you're frail, you're vulnerable, you're, f- you're fragile, that you have limitations. It is to be confronted by literal awesomeness. We get glimpses of it when we look at the stars at night and we realize the vastness of creation and how tiny we are. We had glimpses of it. I got a glimpse of it, I think, the first time I went to the Grand Canyon. And I was so overwhelmed with what I was looking at that I sat down for about two or three hours just to try to focus on the details of what I was looking at to try to understand what I was looking at, the size of it. It's a feeling you get if you're in a little boat out on the ocean and there's a storm and there's lightning and you realize how fragile and vulnerable you are, confronted by the forces of nature, which are nothing compared with the power and the awesomeness of God. It is to be confronted by the uncanny, the eerie, the supernatural, something that is just not part of our world. I got a small glimpse of this. The only time that I was genuinely terrified, Uh, New York did this to me. I came for the first time to New York, and I was staying with a friend, and they had this ratty, dusty, miserable little tiny room, not much bigger than a closet. There wasn't even a bed in there. It was just a mattress. And they said, you can sleep there. I slept there for a week. And the first night, I was laying down on the mattress in my sleeping bag. I was asleep, and then suddenly I was shocked awake. And I realized that my hair was literally standing on end, and that every hair on my arms and my body was erect, and my skin was crawling. What was happening? It was completely freaky. I was instantly alert. And I'm laying on the mattress on the ground. And in the corner of the room, there was this dark mass. And it was moving, little jerky moves. And it was moving towards my head. And I was paralyzed. I didn't want to confront it. It was like, what am I going to confront if I switch the light on? It was just moving towards me. It was the scariest thing that I've ever experienced. So finally, I got up. I can't remember how long I laid there. And I switched on the light. And it was a plastic bag, a grocery bag. And there was this huge cockroach. And its back leg had caught on the bag. And as it crawled along the floor, this bag jerked along behind it. <laughs> it was terrifying. <laughs> the unknown, the, uh, the eerie, the like, this can't happen. Well, the distance and life and reality of a cockroach and a human being are trivial compared with the distance between us, created beings, and our creator. Confronted by God is to be terrified. So what place does love have? It starts with fear of man. Fear of man will make you slaves to the powers of this world because there are things in this world that can kill you. Powerful people who can scare you and control you. Fear of God drives out fear of anything in this world. So you can think of fear of man as kind of a normal human condition. Fear of God is step two. The Bible says, Fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. That is, to come to understand the way things really are. But there's a step three. Fear of God is the beginning, it is not the end. Why? Because of Jesus. John, one of uh, Jesus' other disciples, the one he loved most, said this God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in him. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. God is love. That's not just a description. That is God's reality. Love is the uncreated being of God, the eternal reality of the communal relationship of God's Trinitarian nature, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In the Bible, it is called koinonia. That is eternal, uncreated being and that who is who God is. And we are invited to participate in that, by the way, by Jesus. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in him. There is only one genuine fear, that we will die outside God's love and be no more. It is the only legitimate fear that we should have. Because God is the source of life, the breath of life. Without breath, we choke and die. And that is the human condition. Every human being dies. However, Jesus came to end that alienation. There is no fear in love. Fearing God is a good thing because it drives us to God. It is the beginning step. But it's only the beginning. As we learn about God, as we learn to be in relationship with him through prayer, through worship, through church, through uh, helping each other along the way, as that relationship grows, it is less and less about fear and more and more about love because of Jesus. So think of it this way. Step one. Fear of this world, and most people in this world live in fear. Step two, learning to fear God drives out fear of human beings, fear of the powers of this world. Step three, Jesus ends that fear, because fear is based on alienation, by bringing us to God and making peace between us and God. Paul puts it this way. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. As we learn to live based on faith in God through Jesus, rather than faith in the things of this world, the limited, unstable things of this world. As we ground our lives on the rock of God's reality, we lose fear. Fear of the world, fear of death, fear of anything. And that's the Christian journey. And it's a lifetime journey. You begin it when you become a Christian, And you learn to live more and more in faith in God as you face temptations, as you realize that alternatives are not stable, as you grow in your relationship through prayer, through worship, through fulfilling God's call in your life. A final thought. There is one aspect of fear that remains, though. Um... You know, I'm a single guy, never been married. I have a hard heart. So this is the part that you probably know a lot more about than I do. What happens when you fall in love with someone? It's pretty wonderful, right? But there is a moment, maybe it's a process, but there's a sudden realization that somebody has let you into their heart, has invited you in. And when your lover lets you into their heart, you suddenly realize that they have made themselves completely vulnerable, completely naked. They've exposed themselves to you. And you realize how dangerous that is for them. A single wrong word, a single falsity, a misstep, and you're going to hurt them completely. They have no protection. You're going to hurt the most intimate, vulnerable, and precious place that they have. And that is a fearful place to be. The fear of hurting the one you love because they have made themselves vulnerable to you. The wounds that love allows. Well, that is what Jesus does. Jesus was wounded for us. Remember, he is going to Jerusalem in the story because he's going to the cross. He knows exactly where he's going. He knows exactly what it's going to cost him. He's no victim. And he surrenders himself completely to that because of us. Out of love for his people, for us, for you and I, he makes himself completely vulnerable. Remember, this is God, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipotent, who gives all of that up so he can become fragile, vulnerable, subject to pain. And that's what Jesus did. You know, this is a thought that um, kind of haunts me a little bit. The resurrected Jesus after the crucifixion, he bore scars. He bore the wounds of the crucifixion and when he went through. So he still has them. And the Bible says that one day, we are going to meet him face to face. And when we do, we're going to see love there. That's why he came, to invite us into koinonia, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit forever. But we, and I, we, are going to see those wounds. There will be love, but there will be wounds. We'll see that love engraved on his body. In his hands and his feet, crown of thorns around his head left scars. He was scourged. We're going to see everything that he went through for us to be able to participate in his love. And I wonder about that moment. Yes, love. Yes, the culmination of all things. But also those terrible wounds and our recognition that those wounds were for us. What is that going to be like? I think it's literally unimaginable. It's going to hurt, but it's going to be beautiful at the same time. Or can it possibly be like that moment? He did it because he loves us. And one day, we're going to live fully in that love. And that's the Christian journey. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that through Christ, you are willing to make yourself vulnerable, fragile, that you allowed us in. Lord, you are Betrayed by a kiss, you were scourged, punished, crucified. We can scarcely understand what you went through, but Lord, we are so thankful that you did. Help us to have faith in what you achieved. Help us to base our lives on you and God and what you have revealed. Save us from temptations. Save us from chasing after the things of this world. Save us from fear of the things of this world. Point us towards you forever, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.